All right, so this is Palm Sunday. So this is sort of the celebration going on, right? So, so let's celebrate what God is doing through his word as he instructs us. Matthew 21. You can also follow along in your notes on uh, version, uh, and uh, the instructions should be on the screen. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse number one. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Notice that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter of social and commercial activity in the nation of Israel. It's the most uh, popular city. It's the busiest city. It is the seat of power. And this is where the Romans have set up shop. Uh, The nation of Israel has been occupied by the Romans And the Israelites have been praying for a redeemer, for a king and a deliverer, someone who would come and throw off Roman oppression. There's this carpenter that shows up and he has these amazing abilities. He can heal the sick. He can raise people from the dead. And the multitudes, because they needed hope, found hope in this rabbi. Maybe this is the guy that has been prophesied for generations. Maybe this is our king. And so as Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, he's looking down into the valley, into Jerusalem, and there's all this activity. And Jesus says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And this is the final week of his life, y'all. Everything that Jesus has done up until this point has been counting down to these last seven days. This is the exclamation point on Jesus' life. His three and a half years of earthly ministry are about to culminate over the next seven days. So Jesus is standing at this vantage point and he's seeing all this activity in Jerusalem. He's on the Mount of Olives and he turns to two of his disciples and he gives them this instruction. And he says to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey and it'll be tied and you'll find a colt with her, with the donkey. This is what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to loose them. Number two, I want you to bring them to me. And verse, uh, verse three says, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did just as Jesus had commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the ground and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Hence, Palm Sunday, they cut down palm branches and and waved them at him, but they also spread them on the road so that Jesus could come in, not only on the palm branches, but the very cloaks that they had taken off their backs in honor and celebration of their king. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. One translation says the entire city was stirred. I looked up that word in the Greek and it's a Greek word, sio, S-E-I-O. That means there was a seismic eruption in the city. I don't know if you've ever felt an earthquake or a tremor. But that's what they were experiencing in Jerusalem. I want you to imagine for a moment Jesus coming down Preston Road, y'all. And there is such jubilation and there is such celebration that it is seismic in its proportion. This was no small thing, y'all. The entire city came to celebrate the man that they thought would throw off Roman oppression. To the point that the foundations of the city were shaken, not stirred. For all you Bond fans, y'all missed that. 
But the power of what's happening is that they're celebrating something that Jesus wasn't. In their minds, they had said, this is the guy who's going to deliver us and set us free from Roman oppression. No wonder a few days later, they cried out, crucify him. One of the great lessons we learned from this story is the overwhelming power of unmet expectations. Notice that these were expectations they placed on Jesus, and Jesus had never accepted, or Jesus had never spoken himself. There's no place in the history of the life of Jesus where Jesus says, I am your conquering king, and I'm going to throw off Roman oppression. And sometimes in life, y'all, we experience disappointment because of unmet expectations. And a lot of times those expectations go unmet because they're unrealistic. Notice they placed expectations on Jesus that he had no intention of fulfilling, not because Jesus said he would do those things, but because they had said to themselves, this is how God's going to show up in my life. And how many of us have walked away from God disappointed because we have told ourselves that this is how God is going to show up in my life and in my situation, in my circumstances? How do I navigate the disappointment when I have written my inner script and I've said God's going to show up in my marriage, God's going to show up in this situation the way I scripted it? And so this seismic celebration It's to welcome a king that Jesus had no intention of being. I could spend the rest of the sermon right there and just talk about the power of unmet expectations and the disappointment that results from unmet expectations that we place on God and we place on others. Most of our faith failures are the result of unrealistic expectations that we've placed on God and we've placed on others. And so we hear, here we are at Palm Sunday and they're looking for someone who's going to rid them of Herod and rid them of Pontius Pilate. And Jesus said, I came to die on the cross. How do I continue? How do I go on When God shows up in my life in a way that's very different than I expected him to. How do we navigate that? Well, we'll discover that here in a second. So this seismic celebration. So the multitude says this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. But this is where I want to focus the remainder of my time this morning. I want to focus on what happens before he enters Jerusalem. I don't want to focus on the expectations of the crowd. I want to focus on the invitation that Jesus gives each of us this morning, which is simply this, I have need of you. I have need of you. So point number one is simply this. If it's true that God has need of me, If it's true that God invites me into partnership in what he's doing, number one, I need to be available to God. I simply need to be available to God. And I want you to to imagine and to see the significance of this moment. What God is saying, what God is saying about this donkey and this colt, that was simply somewhere in this village that no one knew about, this donkey that was tied up. You know what he was saying when he sent his two disciples to loose the donkey and the colt and bring them to him because he had, you know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying to each of us that we have a part to play in the fulfillment of his prophetic purpose in the earth. 
I, I want you, this is the fulfillment of prophecy because in Zechariah, this was spoken several hundred years before this moment that we are reading about. You know what that means? When God says, I have need of you, that means there is something that God has desired. There's something that God has imagined for this moment in our city and in our world right now. And when God says, I have need of you, what God is saying is your participation with me in this assignment will be the fulfillment of a dream that I've had in my heart since the beginning of time. Let me tell you about being born again. The fact that you're born again and you're part of the family of God is only the beginning. It's only the entry point. That's where it begins. But your being born again and my being born again is not the end in and of itself. It gives us an opportunity to partner with God and come alongside with God and begin to fulfill what the scriptures have said concerning this very moment in the earth. God is saying, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing in the earth right now. So be available to me. Just be available to me. Now notice the first thing that they had to do with the donkey and the colt. They first had to untie it. There's so many of us that God invites into this prophetic assignment, into, into his purpose in the earth, and he wants to use us, but guess what? Most of us come to the invitation all tied up and bound up, all wrapped up in stuff, that hinders us, that holds us back. It may be things from our past. It may be things we're grappling with in our present. And God is saying to each of us, as he invites us, I want you to be a part of this. But as you come, part of the process is going to be that I'm going to loose you first. I'm going to untie you from the things that have held you tethered to your past, the things that have restricted and limited you, because how many of you know all of us come into the kingdom with some baggage? And so Jesus begins by telling his disciples, before you bring that donkey, before you bring that colt, loose it, untie it. And my availability to God begins with the acknowledgement, the humble acknowledgement that I've got some stuff in my life that I have to surrender to him. Because notice the next thing that he says. He says, untie it, but bring it to me. And how many of us don't even make it to Jesus because of our shame? Because of the things that have bound us. Jesus says, bring that tied up, wrapped up, broken life and bring them to me. And set them at my feet. And Jesus is saying to each of us this morning, no matter what you've carried, no matter what people have put on you, no matter what has restricted you, I still have need of you. And part of the the mandate that he gives us, even with these Easter, Easter invitation cards, is maybe... He calls us not only to deal with our own struggles and come to him just as we are, but maybe he also calls us to be the two disciples who go out and find people who are tied up, who need to be brought to Jesus. Because everything that's happening in this moment is not just about Jesus entering the city. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. And God is saying to each of us this morning, will you join me in fulfilling the dream that I've always had in my heart. So the first thing he says is be, just be available. And don't wait till you're cleaned up and perfect to do it. Come just as you are. Be available. The the, the second thing I think I find here in the text is that after, after we make ourselves available, There's the responsibility that we have. And that responsibility is simply being fit. I'm keeping this message really, really simple. You say, what does that mean? How many of you realize when it comes to sports that there are a lot of people who are available, but they're just not fit? Uh, This is the off season. And when football season starts, Damon Denson's in the house. He played pro ball. There are a whole lot of dudes who show up to training camp unfit out of shape. 
It's one thing to say, God, here I am. I'm available to you. And it's something entirely different to say, I'm not just available for your use, but I'm fit for it. I'm ready for you to use me as you please. Let me, let me, let me, let me tell you what that means. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It says this, but in a great house, one translation says in a mansion, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master and prepared for every good work. Notice what the scripture says. There's a whole lot of different dishes in your house. All of your big baller shot callers who are a part of City Church. Y'all got your fine china in the china cabinet. Gold rim, right? Beautiful pieces. You only bring them out on special occasions. But for everyday use when the kids want cereal, they go and grab those paper bowls. In fact, I just stocked up, y'all, on a whole bunch of paper bowls. You know why? I don't want to do the dishes. <laughs> and all of us have vessels in our house that are useful for everyday use, that we use and discard. But then we have vessels that are set aside for noble purposes. What's God saying? He says when we make ourselves available to him, but we also put ourselves in the position where we are fit, fit, spiritually and emotionally especially, then God says, I can use you for special assignments. Not just for ordinary, everyday work, but now you're fit to do the most honorable of tasks. Be available, but be fit for the master's use. And I feel like I need to kind of unpack this and explain it a little bit better. Because it's one thing to say, God, here I am, use me. And it's another thing to be fit for the master's use. It's one thing to show up at training camp and actually make the team. And God says, I'm inviting each of you into this prophetic thing that I'm doing in the earth, but I need my church to be available to me and I need them to be fit for my use. I want you to hear this. And I want each of us to examine our hearts and say, Am I, have I really made myself available for God to use me however, whenever he chooses? Because he desires to. He desires to. One of my mentors said it this way. We can always, we can always tell our priorities by looking at our checkbook and our calendar. Where I invest my time and where I invest my treasure. And I can say to myself all day long, God, I'm available to you and I'm fit for your use. But I can begin to examine my own life and say, God, am I really fit? If I'm still, in fact, let me put it this way. God gives us sort of this blueprint for what a fit Christian looks like. And as I'm examining the text, I'm saying to myself, whew, Pastor Ray, you got some work to do. You got some work to do. You got some work to do. Because recently, just going up to Maryland and being with my pastor, my mentor, it put a lot of things in perspective. And one of the things that I heard as people were talking about my pastor's life, those who have known him the longest, they talked about how at an early age he made some choices and he made some decisions. And his entire life, he's not only been available to God, but he's been fit for God to use him. 
And after 32 years of ministry, I want you to hear this. After 32 years of ministry, he oversees over 250 churches around the world. In Australia, in Europe, in Brazil, in Bolivia. And I began to take inventory of my own life. And I began to ask myself, God, have I maybe hindered what you've desired to do in my life? Because I haven't made myself fully available and fully fit for your use. And in not being available and in not being fit for your use, I could be hindering what you desire to do through me. It's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Because God has need of everyone in this room. Not just pastors in the pulpit. But God has need of each of us in the marketplace. God has need of us in our marriages. He needs us to be fit and available in our marriages, in our relationships. How can God use me to reach my children if I'm not fit in my marriage? And I began to take inventory of my own life. Because I have to realize that God is saying, I need you. And I need you not just to be available, but I need you to be fit. So, so, so let me give you an example of what a fit Christian looks like. Y'all ready? And this is where I close. Second Peter, second Peter chapter one, second Peter chapter one. And we'll begin reading at verse number five. We should have the text on the screen. Second Peter chapter one and verse Five. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right. So here we go. The Lord, say that with me. The Lord, the Lord has, need has need of me. And you know what that means? Again, let me reiterate it. He needs me to be available and he needs me to be fit. If I have to prepare when opportunity comes knocking, it's already too late. And God is saying there are opportunities and moments that I have prepared for each of my children. But some of them haven't been available. And some of them haven't been fit. Remember when Jesus came to, to the, 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 the multitudes and he said to one, hey, hey, follow me. And the, hey, man, I got to go bury my dad. And he came to the other one. And he said, oh, well, let me go say bye to my friends. You see, Jesus came with an invitation and there was a moment but they weren't available. And the Lord is still saying to each of us, I have need of you. And, and, and so what does it look like to be fit and fruitful? To be fit and fruitful, prepared for every good work. Notice that's what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21, that we will be like those vessels. We'll be like fine china that is sanctified and it's prepared for every good work. To live a life where God says whatever and whenever, I know that Jesse's ready. I know that Pat's ready. I know that Nia's ready. And to live our lives in such a way that we're so available and so fit and so fruitful that God can send us, use us, and deploy us everywhere we're planted. Because God has need of each of us to be our best for him. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, I want you to catch this. It says, but also for this very reason, I want you to give all diligence. Notice he's saying, I want you to prioritize this. I want you to give your best effort. I want you to involve yourself in this, invest yourself fully in this. I want you to make this your priority. He says, add to your faith virtue. Let me, let me stop right there. The baseline for everybody who was a Christ follower is faith. And faith simply learns to trust God when we can't trace him. When the Lord invites us and he says, I want you to be fit and fruitful in my use and in my service. I want you to be available to me. The first order of business is, how's my faith walk? When was the last time I truly trusted God when I couldn't trace him? 
When was the last time I hung in there even when it didn't make sense? Or did I just abandon the process when it didn't go my way? Because God says, if I'm going to use you, and if you're going to partner with me, I need you to walk by faith and not by sight. And he says, give all diligence to strengthen your faith. Because the things that I will invite you to do, the partnerships that I will invite you into will require great faith. And I know that's freaking some of you out because some of you are control freaks. You like to have every I dotted and every T crossed. Yet God says, if you're going to walk this thing out with me, it's not going to be based on what you can see and what you can control and what you can manage. If you're going to be available and fit, this journey is going to require you to walk by faith and continue to trust me even when you can't trace me. He says, give all diligence. Make it your number one priority to be a person of faith. For the just shall live by faith. I would even venture to say that God has invited some of you to take a leap of faith. And he's waiting on the other side to catch you, but you're unwilling to do it. And God is saying, I have need of you. I have need of you. I, 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 I can't ride into Jerusalem without you but I need you to trust me. And most of us say, God, use me. And the first thing he invites us into is walk by faith. God, I want you to use me to change the world. Walk by faith. And he's still saying, I have need of you, but I need you to do it by faith. Oh, the second thing it says is that if I'm going to be fit, you can't be a one-trick pony. You can't be one-dimensional and walk with God. Our God is not a one-dimensional God. In fact, the Bible declares that our God's ways are finding out. So when you just thought you had God figured out, he flips the script on you. To one, he'll say, stretch forth your hand. And to another, he will take mud and spit in it and put it on their eyes. And God says, walk with me. And said, no, no, it's got to happen the way I scripted it. But, but, but he says, not only by faith, he says, add to your faith. You can't be one-dimensional because I'm not a one-dimensional God. I am unpredictable. So he says, you got to add to your faith virtue. Oh. Virtue is moral excellence. You know what that means? It simply means don't allow your charisma to take you places your character can't keep you. Y'all miss that? Huh? Most of us spend our entire lives developing our charisma. Charisma is a Greek word that speaks of giftings and abilities. And most of us devote our lives to how good we are at what we do. And we get places where our character cannot sustain us. And God is saying, if you're going to walk with me and if I'm going to use you, it's not only because you walk by faith. It's because you live with integrity and character. Because my integrity will determine my longevity. Because God could bring you into places by faith. And your lack of moral excellence and virtue will disqualify you. And God is saying, I have need of all my people. Not just to believe me for miracles, but when I get you the miracle, do you have enough moral excellence to stay there as long as I need you to stay there? Can people even depend on you? I ain't even talking about living in sin. I'm talking about, are you even dependable? Are you even reliable? Are you even trustworthy? Because before you show up anywhere, your reputation has preceded you. Before you show up to the car dealership, your credit score has preceded you. 
before you show up for the job or while you're applying for the job, your references from the last job where you cussed out your boss has preceded you. And God says, I have need of you, but I can't just use you if you have faith. Do you have any virtue? Moral excellence. And the scripture says about Daniel, by the way, longevity, Daniel served three different kings in three different governments. He served conservatives, Republicans, independents. Why did he have staying power? The scripture says concerning Daniel that there was an excellent spirit in him. And this is what they said. He said, look, we're trying to trip up this Daniel guy. But we have examined his life. And we can't find nothing. These are people who were trying to destroy him. They looked for scandals. They looked for places where Daniel had taken shortcuts. And they could find Absolutely nothing. And they said the only way he can trip this guy up is with his, his relationship with God. But he lived a life of moral excellence. And because of that, God could use Daniel, who, by the way, was a teenager for all the youth who fall asleep in my messages. <laughs> he was a teenager who spent 70 years in Babylon who spent 70 years in Babylon. God wants to use you at your age. By the way, Mary, who was a teenager between 14 and 16 years old when God showed up to her. Millennials, who sometimes us older folk write off. Is it possible that God wants to use this younger generation if you'll simply be available and fit? Wasn't David 16 when he killed Goliath? when he became the champion that stood between Goliath and an entire nation? No, we got to do better. We got to do better with speaking life into our children. And I say, oh, yeah, they're just seven or just five or they're just four. No, 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 no. All over the scriptures, God used young people like Esther, who was a teenager. Moral excellence. Am I fit for God to use me? Not just my faith, but my character. Moral excellence. Number three, he says, add to your faith, virtue, and then he says, knowledge. One of the things about Christians is that, we, that we sometimes get lazy about is just being learners. This is what we do. I will pray and God will give me this miracle and give me this promotion. How about you go and study and get your certification? No, that's what we do as Christians. We just think that everything is faith. That's the starting point. But he said, add to your faith virtue, add to virtue knowledge. Be a lifelong learner. God says, I want to use you, but you have limited yourself because you graduated from college and stopped reading books. And he says, there's another level that I want to take you into, but you are limiting your capacity because you won't learn. Now, let me stop there for a second. Because the guy who is writing these words, Peter, was just a fisherman. When God planted the church in Acts chapter 4, this is what they said. He said, they took notice that these were unlearned men. When they preached that first sermon, man, these guys... They didn't even go to school. He's a fisherman. But later on in his life, listen to what Peter is saying. Don't stop where you started. When Jesus called you, you may have been a fisherman with no education, but you got to add to your faith virtue and add to your virtue knowledge. That's who's writing this. And when you read the book of 1 Peter, it is one of the most prolific writings in all of the New Testament. These came from the pen of a fisherman who chose to get better. And God says, I want to use you. I want to take you to the next level. But you won't add knowledge. You won't add knowledge. And then you pray, 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 pray. And somebody else gets the job. And you pray, 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 pray. 
and the door opens for somebody else. And they say, well, God, why can't you answer my prayer? God says, add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. Because success in life, according to Malcolm Gladwell, is a series of accumulated advantages. What advantages are you accumulating? One of the advantages you can accumulate is knowledge. And it's not always going out and getting the degree. But it's about being proficient at whatever it is you put your hand to. Okay. I'm about to close. I'm about to close. It is the story of Palm Sunday. God says, I want to use you. I want to use you. But you got to be available and you got to be fit. And if I took you now and put you in this position, what would you do with it? What would you do with it? What would you do with it? Mm, okay. Uh, so, 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 so what, what, what is this? So it's knowledge, right? What, 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 what comes after knowledge? He said, add to your knowledge. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. Add to knowledge, self-control. Self-control. I want you to notice again who wrote these words. The person who wrote these words was a guy who had major anger issues. He's not writing these words to be a hypocrite. He's writing these words because he's saying, I too had to evolve. I too had to get better. I couldn't just stay where I was when Jesus found me. In order for him to continue to use me, I had to deal with my anger issues. Self-control. This is what the Bible says about a person who has no self-control. Proverbs 25 and 28. That a man with no self-control is like a city with no walls open to attack. You got no defense. If you can't control your emotions, if you can't control your passions and desires, the scripture says you're worthless because you will be attacked and overcome with no defense. God said, I can't use you. I want to use you, but if I put you in this position, you're going to lose your temper and start cutting off people's ears like Peter did with Malchus. And Peter is writing these words and he says, you've got to cultivate self-control because God couldn't continue to use me with my anger issues. So I'm not just available, I've got to be fit for him to use me. Fit. What does that mean? All of us got issues. But we've got to do the second thing that he told the disciples to do. Bring them to me. He told them, Untie the horse, the colt, untie the donkey, bring them to me. And if God's going to use us the way he wants to, we have to admit that we have issues in these areas that we need to surrender to Jesus. I promise you that I'm about to close. (laughs) This is number, here's another one, perseverance. Perseverance. Stick-to-itiveness. You know what a diamond is? You know what a diamond is? A diamond is just a piece of coal that didn't quit when the pressure got too hot. That diamond, that diamond that you paid thousands of dollars for, once upon a time was just a hunk of coal. And that hunk of coal stayed where it was under intense amounts of pressure. And out of that pressure, in dark places, came out a beautiful thing that everybody desires. Are you willing to persevere? And that's one of the things that I see Christians just quit all the time. Quit. Quit on God. When it doesn't go that way. When it gets a little bit hard. And God says, I wanted to use you, but you threw in the towel at the finish line. Pearls, ladies love to wear their pearls. Where did that pearl come from? Just a whole bunch of sand. Is that an oyster or a clam? One grain of sand. And that oyster 
takes that sand. That sand is an irritant. It is something that irritates the oyster. And the oyster makes something beautiful of it that everybody wants. And I'm wondering if this morning when God says, I have need of you, that sometimes he's counting on us to persevere through the irritants in our lives, through the pressures that sometimes feel like they're going to overtake us and say, I want to make something beautiful out of this. But man, you quit right around the corner or something beautiful. So you ended up with sand in your shell, but you never made it a pearl. Now, why go through all this trouble only to stop short? And God says, I want to use you, but you quit on me every time. Most Christians, let me talk to you about Christians now, can't take a hard conversation. The scripture says there was a whole bunch of people following Jesus. And one day Jesus said, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. Jesus was speaking, speaking figuratively. He says, unless you're willing to suffer with me. You can't reign with me. And the scripture says that day, many of his disciples left him. Some people want to follow you when things are good. And the moment you have a hard conversation with you, they quit. Let me tell you something. Jesus was perfect and people left him. Jesus was perfect, and a week after they celebrated him and said, blessed is who came in, they said, crucify him. I want us to be the kind of church where we can have hard conversations and still continue to serve God. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, man, I've done that since the beginning. My whole life, Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. Hard saying. He said, I know you can do all this other stuff, but let me show you where the gods are in your life. It's your money. And the scripture says he walked away sad. He walked away from Jesus sad. People walked away from Jesus? Absolutely. And after he walks away, this is what Jesus says. There is no one, there is no one who gives up houses and lands and family that will not inherit that a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Guess what? He wasn't there to hear that. He thought he was going to give up something and lose it all. Jesus says, there's nothing you give up for me that I won't return to you a hundredfold. And most people don't stay till the end of the service. Perseverance. And one hard saying, and the people quit. Okay, so um, add to your perseverance, godliness. Do I have time to even talk about that? Jesus. Do I even have time to talk about that? Godliness. Just act like Jesus. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Just act like Jesus did. Right? If we're going to follow Jesus, let's act like him. And, and let me tell you how Jesus acted. Y'all ready for this one? Y'all ready for this one? Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. You mean to tell me the Holy Spirit came on Jesus and the first thing the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do was good? Yeah. You and I have the power of God to just do good. And sometimes God can't use us because we're not good. Let me, let me say, wow, listen, he can't use us not because we're not perfect, but you're just not a good person. You're not a kind person. You're not a gentle person. And God says, how could I use you to reach these people if you just mean? I want to, but how? 
Can I use you on your job, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, if you're not even godly? Okay, so here's where I close. What's that, godliness? Okay, brotherly kindness. That's where we get the word Philadelphia. That's what that word is, Philadelphia. We call it the city of brotherly love. Just brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. It means fraternal affection. The same kind of loyalty, Jesse, you learned in the army, I learned in the army. First thing they did when we got to basic training, they assigned a battle buddy. And we went through basic training with that battle buddy. And you looked out for your battle buddy. And your battle buddy looked out for you. If you were doing an inspection and your T-shirt wasn't six inches and it wasn't rolled tight, if they came in and did an inspection and you didn't have that hospital, what do you call the hospital? The, the hospital corner, if it wasn't just right, if you couldn't bounce that quarter off that mattress, your battle buddy came and helped you. He got your back. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to know that there are soldiers who are more loyal to their battle buddy than Christians who are loyal to each other. It breaks my heart to know that people are in fraternities and sororities and are more loyal to their frat brother and their soror than they are to their Christian sister and brother sitting next to them every Sunday. And God said, how can I use you if you won't even cover your brother's back? You do it for everybody else. And the last thing he says is love. The last thing he says is love. He said, I don't just want you to be available. I want you to be fit for my use. And this is what you need to have in your life. And Roz, why don't you come? Because this is, this is the end. Listen to what he says. Add to brotherly kindness, love. Because verse 8 says, for if these things are yours, if these things are yours and they abound, you don't just got it but you have it in abundance. It overflows from your life. It pours out of you. It oozes out of you. Listen to what he says. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful. You know the key to a fruitful life and a productive life in the hands of God is to have those eight things at work in our lives. And so when the scripture says the Lord has need of you, could it be that maybe God isn't using us to the extent and the measure that he would like to because we're available, but are we fit? And so I want to challenge us as a church and as a body, as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, to cultivate these eight things so that we can be useful in the master's hand and be a part of fulfilling God's dream in the earth. And, and so here's the final thing that we're going to do. The picture of what I just read, where he says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control, the word picture there is that of a musician creating a beautiful harmony. So I've asked Rosin to come because faith is like the beginning point. But he says, add to your faith virtue. So go ahead and play that first note and just sustain it. This is the way our lives sound when we're one-dimensional Christians. You just got that one note. And when life squeezes you, that's all that comes out. That's not necessarily bad, but your whole life is one-dimensional. And Abraham Maslow, the father of modern psychology, says, if all you have in your hand is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. You're going to be like that dad on my big fat Greek wedding with Windex. <laughs> Windex is going to fix everything, but that's not true. And he says, don't be one dimensional, but add to your faith virtue. Second note, play them together. See, there's more color. Now you don't only have melody, but now you have harmony because there's two notes at work. Third note, or all three together. All right, fourth note. Fifth note, sixth, seventh, right there. 
and just sustain that for a second. That's the picture of what our lives begin to sound like. It's a life song that sings to God. It's not just that one note that it started, but it's a beautiful sound. Go ahead and just play that arpeggio. Doesn't that just want to make you float away? Let me... That's what your life begins to sound like. When you walk in the room, that's what people hear because what's oozing out of you is faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and, and, and what else? The other two, I forget now. Brotherly kindness and love. That's what comes out of us. And it's attractive. And it's beautiful. Here's the other thing about that, that chord she's playing is that chord is very rare. You're not going to hear it in every song. It's very rare. And what that means is God wants our life song to be rare. That's set apart for special purposes. You would hear that kind of chord in maybe a, a romantic ballad or in some kind of jazz. And, and you're not going to hear it in everyday rock and roll that just has three chords. Because you have so added virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance to your life that God now can use you for special purposes. So what does that mean? It simply means this. Opportunity favors the prepared. So live ready. That cult was ready when the disciples showed up. Because the opportunities that God will send our way favor those who are prepared. So live ready because the Lord has need of you. Live ready because God needs you. Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name.